So I had a conversation with a friend the other day. This friend was very sad. I said, why are you, why are you sad? Joy of the Lord is your strength. He said, I know, but I'm still sad. I said, what's going on? He said he had encountered a crying strawberry. Yeah, a crying strawberry. He said that he was walking through his kitchen and heard noise from the refrigerator. So he opened up the refrigerator and there was a crying strawberry there in the refrigerator. And I said, why was the strawberry crying? And he said, well, because his friend was in a jam. <laughs> well, evidently there, there aren't any crying strawberries, obviously, but I have a sneaky suspicion that there are some people today in this room or online who has been crying all week. May not be crying strawberries, but there are some crying parents, some crying spouse, crying siblings, a crying friend, crying business owner who has found themselves in the middle of a jam. Sometimes we learn in life that life will put us in a position where all we got is a cry. And if that's you today, you find yourself in the middle of a jam, in the middle of a, of a situation where all you have is a cry, then you know exactly what the children of Israel were facing here in the book of Lamentations. And before I get started, I, do, I don't want to forget that uh, our children's church is meeting, our teen church is meeting right now ages 3 to 18 in the second floor. Um, so if you want your child to go and have some personalized touch and worship, our Pastor P and volunteers are there. But today I want to spend some time in the book of Lamentations. And uh, this book speaks to the pain that the children of Israel have found themselves in. This book emerges from uh, the late 5th century B.C., 587 B.C. to be exact, where Jerusalem has now been destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The nation is desolate and dried up. And when we speak of the destruction of Jerusalem, I just, I want us to understand that this isn't just some biblical story found in Scripture. This was something that actually happened in the history of the Jewish people. It's recorded that the Babylonians came in and took, it created a siege around the wall of Jerusalem to the point where the army of Babylon surrounded that wall and nothing came in and out of Jerusalem, not even food. For two years, the children of Israel were starving. For two years, they couldn't, have, they couldn't find any food to the point where people died from that starvation. Even the writer of Lamentations talks about how the mothers begin to boil their children and eat their children because of the need was so desperate. I want you to imagine the type of destruction that the children of Israel have found themselves in that not only the siege around the wall, but the enemy came in and conquered the city, 
The city is now occupied where thousands of men, women, and children have now been victim to the sword of the enemy. Another thousands, thousands more are now being exiled into the city of Babylon. This is what the children of Israel are experiencing right now, social, political oppression. They're experiencing death. They're experiencing depression. The land that was once flowing with milk and honey has now been dried up. The land that was once known as the promised land is now the scene of a nightmare. And the life that the children of Israel once known, the normalcy has now been shattered. It's a land of despair, of depression, of agony, of, of, of despair. And this is the setting of the book of Lamentations because the writers are literally writing from a, a witness account. This is a witness account, first-person witness account of the pain, of the agony, of the death and depression of the children of Israel during this time in which the Babylonians empire came in and conquered this land. And, and now the children of Israel are crying out to God. They're crying out this entire book. And it's a book of poetry that literally articulates the pain and the despair that the children of Israel are in. But in the middle of these five chapters, in the middle of this book, in the middle of the chapter, chapter three, there's a glimpse of hope in the midst of all the pain. Beginning at verse number 19, Lamentations 3, there's a glimpse of hope. It's like it's like that, that light that is shimmering in the light, in the darkness. It's like, it's like that island of hope in the sea of despair. This particular passage of Scripture, Limitations chapter 3, verse 19, says, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope. When I remember this, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercy never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the middle of pain, in the middle of agony, in the middle of depression and death and desperation, the writer pens, yet I still dare to hope. And that's the word I want to give to somebody today. I dare you to hope. Tell somebody, turn, turn somebody around you and tell them, I dare you to hope. I dare you to hope. In the middle of your pain, in the middle of your agony, in the middle of what you're going through, I dare you to hope. The children of Israel in this depressed are surrounded by death and dismay and despair. The writer, by the time we get to chapter 3, begins to paint a personal picture of the pain that he's experiencing. Tradition says that, that it was the prophet Jeremiah that pins these letters to this book. It's five separate poems. All of them tell the story of the pain of the children of Israel. They're in the midst of this pain, but they begin to lament. And this is why the book is referred to the book of Lamentations. It's literally 
a book of tears, a book of pain, a book of agony and sorrow. To lament means to, to do more than just cry and shed tears. To lament means to have a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. To lament. And they are in the midst of pain and agony, but they, but they begin to lament. See, lament is different from just crying. See, when you're crying, oftentimes we're seeking help. Oftentimes when we're crying, we're at a space in which we can't do much about it and it's a cry for help. But to lament means I'm not just crying for help, but I'm crying to the one who can provide the help. It's not just a cry, it is a crying out. It is to lament. It is a genre in scripture that is found not just in the book of Lamentations, but also in the book of Job, where Job lost everything and he begins to lament. In the book of Psalms, where the psalmist begins to question, to question faith and theology because of the pain that they're experiencing, they begin to lament. Even in the New Testament, as Jesus is facing the despair of Calvary, Jesus begins to lament. This lamenting is an important aspect to our Christian journey because it gives us a space to let things go. It gives us a safe space to get some things off of our chests. In a sense, it's taking our hands off of it and allowing God to put God's hands on it. And some of us have spent all pandemic and have yet to lament. Dr. Teresa Fry Brown says, Black folks, we good at shouting. We know how to shout. We just don't know how to tell a mint. And there are some things that goes down in life where you can't shout your way through. There are some things that will happen in your life where you can't dance and run your way through. Only lamenting can give you that space where you can find the health and the restoration that you need. You can't shout your way through a shooting massacre. It's hard to shout your way through a divorce. How are you going to shout your way of losing your job and transitioning? Because every now and again, life will put us in a position where all we have is our cry. And the writers begin to cry out to God because the writers here in this book are teaching us a ways in which we can have a healthy response to the jam that we're in. We can have a healthy response to the pain and the agony that you will find yourself in. Because if you haven't experienced the jam yet, Lady Sharon would say, baby, keep on living. Sooner or later, you'll find yourself in the middle of a jam. And the question is, how do you lament? How do you passionately express yourself in the midst of your jam? How do you go about expressing the pain and the frustration and the agony that you're in? Because some of us, the way we deal with the pain that we're in is unhealthy. Unhealthy to ourselves, unhealthy to our families. And sometimes the unhealthiness that we experience is because we seek to ignore the problem instead of lamenting and expressing 
we suppress it and hold it in. How do you handle it? How do you deal with it? I'm reminded of Kendrick Lamar. I'm still listening to the album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. In that album, there's a song entitled, We Cry Together. It is a song with Kendrick Lamar and an actress named Taylor Page. And both of them are rapping back and forth in this rap duet in this song entitled, We Cry Together. Now, I'm not gonna encourage you to go back and listen to the song because the song is rated R. There's a lot of what scholars call holy profanity in the song. But the song depicts a couple who's in the midst of a heated argument. The song begins with the voiceover that says, this is what the world sounds like. And immediately we get a glimpse into this toxic argument between a male being played by Kendrick Lamar and a woman who's being played by Taylor Page and they're both going back and forth bickering and arguing and bantering. They're both cussing each other out, talking about each other's parents, talking about in, in ways in which they operate in the relationship. The song is called, We Cry Together, but ain't no tears in the song. Ain't no tears in the song, but it's pain in the song. There's frustration in the song. There's agony in the song. There's broken heart in the song. We cry together. Ain't no tears, but it's a lot of frustration. And at the end, the voiceover reads, it says, stop dancing over the real issue. Because by the end of the song, the couple, after all the cussing and arguing, after all the stepping over the line, there's no solution to the problem. There's no dealing with the root of the matter. Of fact, at the end of the song, it implies they went right back into the bedroom as they danced over the issues of the song, over the issue of their relationship, which causes me to ask some of us, how do we dance around our problems? Is it by holy profanity? Is it by staying busy with our work? Is it by ignoring the issues of our life? How do you deal with it? How do you lament? How do you mourn? How do you passionately express the agony and pain that you find yourselves in? Because the writers of Lamentations, when they were in their pain, in the midst of their jam, they cried out to God by way of poetry. They cried out to God by way of writing. They turned their issues to the hand of God because they understood that even in the midst of my pain, while I'm in the middle of my jam, I serve a God that moves and hears me when I cry out to God by faith. Some of us, we cry to each other. Others of us, we cry online. When will you turn to God with your cries? Because the God we serve hears us when we pray. The God we serve is moved by the cries of his children. Like when the children of Israel were in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, the Bible says in the book of Exodus that God heard the cries of his people. Then recruited Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. 
that the children of Israel had an opportunity to experience freedom and liberation all because God heard their cries. Sometimes in the midst of your jam, all you got is your cry. Maybe that's why God allowed the jam to take place in your life anyhow, because God understands that if I gave you everything you asked for, I wouldn't hear from you. So I'm going to put you in the middle of a jam so I can at least know that you still got your cry. And that's what God does. God puts us in a jam just to hear his children cry. I'm reminded of this child who was buried alive in Oklahoma City. A few years ago, the child is only a couple of days old, and evidently the parent of the child felt like they didn't have the means to raise this child in a healthy, safe environment. The only option in this parent was to bury that child alive. So they went on a popular trail in the city and buried that child under rock and rubble. A couple of days later, there were... Uh, some women walking on the bike path and they, one of them said, I hear a baby crying. And they begin to follow the cries of the baby and they found this baby buried alive under rock and rubble. And the baby survived that horrible ordeal because that baby used all that the baby had. I told you that the baby was in something that he couldn't get himself out of. And all the baby had was a cry. And the cry that the baby had ignited the move of somebody that could set him free. And I'm speaking to somebody in here today. You're buried in some stuff that should take you out. You're buried in some stuff that should kill you. You're buried in some stuff that you should give up in. But before you give up, I dare you to give God a cry. I dare you to turn to God with your lamenting. And God, when you cry out to God by faith, God will step in and take you out of what you're dying in. And it's the power of the cry of the children of God that moves God. And, and that's what happens in the book of Lamentations. And by the time we get to chapter 3, I read it to you. The story now gets a little bit more personal. See, the first two chapters and the last two chapters, they were more like communal laments. But this time, the writer goes from communal to individual. Because at all the pain that all of us are going through right now, nationally and globally, and collectively as black people in America, that's even before we go pull up at your address with the problems that you're dealing with, with the pain and the agony and the jam that you're in the midst of. And, and, and the writer begins to talk about the pain that he's in. And, and the writer says in verse 19 that he's dealing with homelessness. He's literally lost everything because of the despair, because of the destruction, because of the death that he's in. He's grieving. He's lost everything. But, 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 but when you lose everything, when you feel like you have lost everything, that's when you got to hold on to the things that you do have. Because to lose everything and then to lose your faith puts you in a messed up position. To lose, to lose everything and then to lose your faith will have you in a position of despair and hopelessness. And this is what Dr. Cornell West calls nihilism. This hopelessness, this meaninglessness, this lovelessness that so many people are operating in this world in. 
And with the rise of suicide and depression and all that is going on, there's a sense of hopelessness that's in the air. It's a sense of meaninglessness. It's a sense of lovelessness. Dr. Cornell West says that nihilism, that hopelessness is a, is a disease to the soul. But one of the ways in which we can turn that around is by adjusting our outlook. Because our outlook on life is determined by your uplook to who your God is. Because if you serve a God who is still in control, regardless of what you find yourself in, you got enough to root your hope in a God who can turn your situation around. Because notice, notice what the writer does. The writer speaks to this idea of hope, but hope doesn't show up until there is a shift in your thinking. Notice what it says in verse 19. The thought of my suffering and hopelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Look at the pain in his mental state. Look at, the, look at the thoughts that he's having. But then we get to verse 21, and there's a shift in the thinking. It says, yet I still, to, I, I still dare to hope when I remember this. I'm trying to show you the shift in the thinking. Because when you are surrounded by suffering and pain and depression, it's easy to think about what you see. It's the reality of my pain. I'm in the midst of my jam. I'm in the midst of my agony. All I think about is the pain that I endure. But there ought to be a shift in your thinking. Because not only do you need to think about what you're going through, but you need to remember what you already came through. There's a shift in my thinking. I think about the suffering I'm in. I think about the pain that I'm in. I think about the disease that's on my life. But yet I remember that there's a God who delivered me from my past disease. There's a God that healed me from my past depression. There's a God that got me through from my past financial ordeal. And when I remember what God has done in my past, that can give me hope to endure the pain that I'm in right now. I dare you to hope. When you got to shift your thinking, that's why the writers in the New Testament said, think about those things that are above, not those things that are below. I'm shifting my thinking. That's why Paul says, you got to capture the thoughts and make it obedient to God. I am shifting my thinking because when I pay attention so much to the suffering, I'll lose my sense of hope. What is hope? Hope is the expectation that things will get better. Hope is the expectation that things are bad now, but it won't always be like this. Hope is having the idea that I'm shifting my perspective to what is from what is surrounding me to what is in front of me. I'm shifting my thinking from the pain of my right now to the destiny and the future of my not yet. I dare you to hope. How can I hope at a time like this? The pain and the agony and despair and death that surrounds me. Because what we've been through is not normal. The loss that we've experienced is not normal. The trauma that we get on a daily basis is not normal. How do I remain hopeful? Your hope 
is tied in to your memory. And notice what the writer remembers. The writer is in the midst of pain, in the middle of agony, in the middle of all the lamenting. And he says, I remember the faithful love of the Lord never ends. See, you can keep your hope in, in a God whose love is faithful. See, God, see, see, somebody just needed to hear the fact that God loves you. Uh, despite of all the pain and the mistakes that you're in, despite of all the drama that you face, despite of the trauma that's in your background, God still has love for you. That's enough to keep hope alive. But wait, not only does God have love, but God's love is faithful. See, the Hebrew word for love is a term that, that consists of loving kindness. It speaks of a type of love that is expressed within a covenant or a contract. Like, like God, Yahweh, made a covenant with the children of Israel and said, y'all got to live within the boundaries of this covenant because I will be your God and you will be my people. And I'm going to show you how faithful my love is. Well, the children of Israel, they stepped outside the boundary, stepped over the line. As a result, destruction has now set in on their life. The, the, the children of Israel believe the destruction from the Babylonians came because of their sin and their inconsistencies with God. But here's what the writer says, that even when our love for God is unfaithful, God has a love, love for us that remains faithful. Because if we can all be real, when you're in the middle of your pain and your jam, it's easy to turn to drugs and alcohol. It's easy to turn to sexual promiscuity. It's easy to slip in and, and become cynical and have our minds be settled in on negativity. But, but, but there have been moments where all of us have slipped and fallen in the midst of the jam. But the writer says, I can remain faithful because even when I ain't faithful, God's love remains faithful. That God's love for us never ceases. God's love for me never ceases to amaze me. That even after I made all the mistakes, God's love says, I'm still going to look for you. God's love says, I'm still going to search for you. God's love says, I'm still going to seek you. Like Adam and Eve, after they, after they ate that forbidden fruit, they realized they were naked. And they try to take man manners into their own hands and begin to hide themselves. And the very next thing that God said after they slipped and fallen were, God says, where are you, Adam? I'm so glad that God still looks for me even in my sin. Where are you? God still seeks me through the faithfulness of his love. It's like that prophet Hosea that buried that prostitute, Gomer. And that prophet Hosea quickly learned that you can save a prostitute from the streets, but sometimes you can't save the street out the prostitute. And the prostitute went out. It was unfaithful. And then God told the prophet Hosea, now go and look for your unfaithful wife and marry her again. Redeem her again. God, why would I do that? Because I'm trying to show 
the children of Israel how I operate in their life. After they've been unfaithful to me, after they cheated on me, after they turned their back on me, God says, I still love you in a way that I'm going to search for you even in your sin. And I know that there's somebody in the room that can testify that the only reason why you're here today in somewhat of your right mind is because God's love has remained faithful. That even when you slipped up, even when you messed up, I can still have hope in my despair because of God's faithful love. Wait, wait, wait. I can still hope not just because of his love, but the text says because God's mercies are new every morning. Huh. See, if you can't shout over the faithful love of God, you've got to be able to shout over the fact that God's mercies are new or refreshed every single morning. Wait a minute. His mercies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, 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 the love there is dealing with the loving kindness. It's dealing with the compassion of God. It is dealing with the grace of God. See, we all know what grace is. Grace is, is something that God gives you that you don't deserve. And oftentimes, we can experience grace by the material blessings that we receive. Because somebody can testify, I don't deserve the job I have. I don't deserve the spouse I have. I don't deserve the house I live in. I don't deserve the car that I drive. It's, it's been God's grace. God showed up and gave you something that you didn't deserve. But then there are moments that the children of Israel are facing where they ain't got no material things. They've lost everything. But they said, my hope wasn't built on my chariot. My hope wasn't built on my house. My hope wasn't built on relationships. My hope was built on something that can sustain and be refreshed every single day. Oh, see, see, some, well, see we all know somebody, a couple that's been married for 50, 70, 80 years, but their marriage was stale. It lasted forever, but it wasn't refreshed. God says, I'm going to give you something that lasts forever and is refreshed on a daily basis. What are you giving me, God? I'm giving you mercy. Grace is giving you something that you don't, that you don't deserve. Mercy is holding back the things that you do deserve. So if God, if God is holding back what I do deserve, that means I ain't gonna, I'm not seeing it. And sometimes we can take for granted the mercies that show up on a daily basis. Mercies is withholding, is bringing back the very thing you do deserve, which means that every single morning, God is holding stuff back that should show up on your doorstep. God is covering you and protecting you from danger seen and unseen. God is removing the very things that should be taking your life and the fact is, his mercies are new every single morning. And I'm so, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that the mercies are new every morning. Because if the Lord waited around 1130 to give out some fresh mercy, it'd be too late by then. Because there are new sin that try to creep up. There are new enemies that are trying to take you out. There's new traps that are being set by folk you don't even know. 
So God says, I'm going to give you some fresh mercy every single morning so you can operate and move in the power of my love. Is there anybody grateful for the mercies that are new every single morning? Great is thy faithfulness. It's because of the love of God that we are not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The faithfulness of God, the consistency of God, it is so great because we are born in sin, shaping in iniquity, and sometimes our sins can be consistent. Sometimes it feels like my sins never cease. But I'm so glad that regardless of how great my sin is, God meets my greatest sin with God's great faithfulness. And this is why the writer says, I can still hope because his love is faithful, his mercies are new, and the Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my source of strength. The Lord is my power. That I have access to the presence and the power of God because the Lord is my portion. He's my source. And I can have hope in the middle of the pain and the agony that I'm facing because the Lord is my portion. New Living Translation say, the Lord is my inheritance. I love that the Lord is my inheritance because inheritance implies relationship. See, you can't, you, you can't receive an inheritance from somebody that you ain't been in a relationship with. And God says, listen, you in the midst of your pain and agony right now, but you are still in relationship with me to the point where it's not material things that have become your inheritance, but I myself and God has become your inheritance. Inheritance? Inheritance is something that you can't even receive until somebody dies. The Lord is my inheritance? That implies that something had to die for you to get access to the power and the presence of God. Well, this is limitations. This is the Old Testament. Well, what had to die in the Old Testament? The pigeons, the doves, the goats, the lambs, all the things that the children of Israel had to sacrifice because of all the sins that they were committing. Every day, somebody was making some form of sacrifice and killing off some life so that the children of Israel can have that inheritance and that portion with God. Something had to die for us to receive the inheritance of God. The love of God that never ceases, yeah, it just, it's just not in the Old Testament. It showed up in the New Testament. What did the love of God look like in the New Testament? Yeah, not through poems and words, but it was through the Word made flesh. And the Word made flesh dwelt and lived among the pain and the agony that we were in. And God wanted to remind us that I am sending you the word made flesh to help you deal with the agony that you're in and remind you that despite of the pain, I still have relationship with you. 
I still have an inheritance with you. Wait, an inheritance can't come until somebody died. Well, who had to die? I'm done. God said, I'm done with the doves. I'm done with the pigeons, but I got one more lamb left. And the Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus died so that you can have power to endure the hell that you're facing. Not only did he die, but the Bible says early Sunday morning, he rose up with all power in his hands. So if God had the power to raise a dead Jesus from the grave, how much more shall the God we serve raise us up out of whatever hell we're facing? Because God has given us the power through the shed blood of the lamb. Something had to die to cover us in the midst of what we're going through. We've all heard stories by now that come out of that school shooting in Texas. The bad news of how the police handled that messed up situation with all the students that lost their lives and the teachers that lost their lives it was a messed up, traumatic experience for the families, for the children, for the classmates, for all of us consuming that news. There was a glimmer of hope that came out of that messed up story, a survival story, as it were. Young Maya, who attended that school in elementary, testified about how they were finishing watching a movie. It was they only had a few more days left before school were let out for the summer. And as the movie ended, they began to hear gunshots and the gunman showed up to her classroom. And Maya said that as soon as that gunman showed up to that classroom, he took out two of the teachers that were there and began to senselessly shoot the children in that classroom. She said that he then moved to the adjoining classroom and she heard even more gunshots in the next room. And so this scared little girl, hoping and believing that she can survive this ordeal, said that she got down next to a, to a classmate who had been slain by the gunman and began to cover herself with the blood of her friend who had died before her. And because she covered herself with the blood of the friend who died before her, she was able to walk out of the very thing that should have took her out, all because she was covered in the blood. I know that there's some people that got a similar testimony that when you found yourself in a messed up situation, you had enough faith to cover yourself up with the blood of the friend who died before you. His name is Jesus, and the Bible says he is our friend that shed the blood so that all of us can have eternal life. Is there anybody grateful for the blood of Jesus that gives us power day by day? No wonder why our ancestors said, I built my hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holding on to the Jesus name. And in other words, I can stand on Jesus, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground are seeking sand. Is there anybody in the room that can praise God that despite of your pain, I still got hope, I still got love of Jesus Christ.